Well, welcome to Vertical Life Church, and happy Father's Day. You know, today is a day we set aside to celebrate dads. Now, it's important we make a distinction because anybody can donate genes, but it takes a real individual to be a father, to be a dad, to invest, and to give of themselves. And so we're, we're honoring our fathers today. We say thank you to the men who have stepped up to their God-given uh, calling to be a father and a, and a dad. Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 23 today. If you have your Bible, you can turn there uh, or flip there. If you have your digital copy, we're going to read from the scriptures. And, and this week, it's just I love getting into God's word, especially as we've been going through the gospel of Matthew, because it seems like every time we get to the next section, God's already prepared the word for us. And so we're going to be taking a look at the grace-filled fatherhood today. Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 1, says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside. They wear robes with extra long tassels. They love to sit at the head table at banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi. Don't let anyone call you rabbi. For you only have one teacher, and all of you are equal brother as brothers and sisters. And don't address anyone here on earth as father, for only God in heaven is your father. Don't let anyone call you teacher, for you only have one teacher, the Messiah. The greatest among you must be a servant, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Father in heaven, we just gather in your name today. We open our hearts and our ears to the word that you have prepared for us, God. And so I just pray, Father, you'd speak loudly, that there be no doubt that we've had an encounter with you today. And no matter where anyone is today, as they've walked in this place, God, I pray that they would know that they matter to you. God, that you love them. God, you're not holding these vigorous and rigorous standards over our heads, God, but through your grace and your love, you are empowering us to live for your honor and glory, and it's through that relationship with Jesus Christ, God, that we can have the strength to overcome any trials and situations that we've gone through and are preparing to enter into. God, we give you glory for the blessings that we receive, even the ones we don't recognize. In Jesus' name, amen. So today I want to talk to you about the grace-filled fatherhood, and this is going to be more of a testimony, really, than, than a message but the truth is, dads, the kind of dad you are will shape who your children become. The kind of father you are will shape the type of children or the people they grow into being. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 6, the wisest man to have ever lived, King Solomon, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and through his great wisdom, he said, in first, chapter 17, verse 6, he says, The glory of children is their fathers. The glory of children is their fathers. You could basically reword that to say this, that Solomon here in Proverbs is saying that the height of your children's potential is affected greatly 
by what kind of father you are. Think about that. Think about what that means. That according to the word of God, having children is not only a great blessing, but being a father is also a great responsibility. You are more than just someone who donated genes to bring forth a child. God has called you for a great purpose. For the shadow of the father is cast upon the legacy of his children. Now, I've only been married for 12 years. I've been a father for 10 years. So I've learned a lot, but I have a long way to go. And I considered the last 10 years of fatherhood for me to be very experimental. So I don't think any parent really has it figured out how to raise children, how to do it right. I really think we're just doing the best we can, making it up as we go, and hoping and praying that our kids turn out okay. It's just kind of an experiment. That's why if you have multiple children, you know what you did with the first child, you tend not to necessarily follow through with in the second child because you realize how badly you're screwing up the first one uh, by, by you know, the things that you decided to do. So it's this big experiment. Uh, but you know, God's been teaching me some things, and so I'm going to share with you some of the things God's been teaching me about myself and my journey in fatherhood. Now, the Bible paints this kind of picture about how God made men. If you didn't know that, men and women are made differently. We are different. We're not just uh, able to use different bathrooms because of being called male or female. God actually intrinsically, deep down to our very creation, made us unique. And uh, Matt Chandler, pastor of the Village Church in Texas, he kind of describes the way God made men this way. He says, God made men to work and to war, to work and to war. And when you look at Genesis chapter 3, after mankind had sinned, after Adam and Eve had sinned and introduced death into the world, gave power to the enemy, and you see God confront them about their sin and what they did, God begins to hand down these judgments, kind of tell them how life is going to be from here on out now that they did this great sin. And as God is speaking to Eve, he says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, he tells her, you will desire to control your husband, but he will what? He will rule over you. Something changed in men at the fall. We have this desire now. In the heart of men, there's not only this competitive nature, but it's a deep desire to be on top. Who do you think invented the game King of the Hill? Those guys. We want to be on top. We want to be the big dog. We want to rule. And along with this desire to rule comes with it attitudes of pride and arrogance. One of my biggest struggles as a follower of Jesus Christ is with pride and arrogance. Always has been. I don't want to be that way, but it just kind of flows out of me. You know, I wake up saying, God, make me humble. And I end up saying, God, forgive me for being prideful. It just happens. And for a person who lacks confidence in so many different ways, you would seem like that would be an oxymoron. But to tell you the truth, I think the lack of confidence often fuels that pride and that arrogance. But for those of you who haven't really known my wife and I for any length of time, I've shared this with the church before. When Tony and I were first married, we didn't really want to have children. And ultimately, in my heart, it was because of pride. I was selfish. I didn't want to have that responsibility. I didn't want to sacrifice what I wanted, my plans, my dreams, all of those things for uh, having children. But then when God blessed us with our first child, some things changed. God changed my heart about being a parent when Jocelyn, our firstborn, 
was brought into this world. But even though my heart changed from not wanting to be a parent to loving being a parent, it was still pretty prideful. The pride changed focus. It changed from being centered around being a parent to now what kind of parent I was going to be. And because honestly, I had a lot of judgment towards some parents. It's one of the reasons why I didn't want to have kids. I mean, when you walk down the grocery store aisle and there's this kid laying on the floor, hands and feet smacking the floor, screaming and crying at the top of their lungs, and the parents just like not even acknowledging that kid. Like I, in my heart, thought, there is no way I'm having one of those. And then when I had one of those, I'm like, there's no way I'm going to be that kind of parent. I always swore that I would not be the parent that would count at my children. You know what I'm saying? You count at your kids, you get to that magic number that implies that some type of impending doom is going to happen when I get to that number, and then when they get to that number, guess what? Nothing happens. And the child just looks at them like, you crazy. Which teaches that child, guess what? When I don't want to obey, I can walk all over mom and dad. And I swore I would never have children who would walk all over me. I never wanted to be that kind of parent. I wanted kids that would listen well and behave well. And on top of that, I wanted to be noticed for how well I parented. When I went out in public, I wanted people to say, man, you've got well-behaved kids. You've got kids that have just, man, you must be great parents because of the behavior of your children. You see, I had a huge chip on my shoulder. And then I'm not talking like a cheese it I'm talking like a restaurant-style tortilla chip, you know? You scoop that thing, you can get the whole thing of dip in one scoop, right? And not just one chip, but like a whole bag of chips. I had this chip because I was defiant. I wasn't going to be the kind of parent that I disliked. Why? Because I knew what I thought about those kinds of parents. And I didn't want people thinking those thoughts about me. And so this is what I filled in my heart, this pride filled in my heart. So my parenting style at home was more like boot camp than a home. There wasn't a whole lot of grace with me. There, was a whole, there wasn't a whole lot of room to make mistakes. You spill the milk, you get in trouble. It was fall in line, do it right, or we're going to have some consequences type of an environment. All because I was interested more in looking good than loving them. And I was more consistent with my discipline than I was with any other area of my life. You see, I was legalistic. In my belief, in my faith, and in my life. Legalism is simply a system of living where only the rules matter. That's it. And my form of parenting was very legalistic. It was a legalistic form of parenting focused on enforcing the right rules rather than leading their hearts to choose right for themselves. There's a difference. Because truthfully, I wanted to be known as such a good parent more than I wanted to be known as a good father to my kids. Thankfully, God is alive and real. And the more you love him, the more you trust him, the more you follow him, he begins to work those things out in your life. And so the chips on my shoulders now more like a Frito than a bag of chips. It's still there, but God's working on me. But every day I'm learning to be a more gracious and patient parent. In chapter 23 of Matthew, verse 1, Jesus is addressing this group of people, they are priests, they are teachers of religious law. These are legalistic men. They are the, the rulers of the religion in that day, and they were all about the rules. And as Jesus is talking to his disciples and, and confronting these, 
priests, these Pharisees, these teachers of religious law, here's what Jesus says. He says to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. In other words, they're in charge. These are the top dogs. These are the official guys you need to be paying attention to. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but do not follow their example, for they don't practice what they teach. And this is what happens in a legalistic mindset when you are focused on the rules, you're focused on doing what's right. Oftentimes, as you're focusing on the rules, you're forgetting about following them yourself and rising up to that challenge. Verse 4 says, they crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. This happens when you're focused on those rules. You're more concerned with the rules of religion, the rules uh, of what's right. You're more focused on those than trying to follow them yourself. And you end up hammering down anyone else who fails to reach those standards. You hammer them down. You oppress them. You push them down. You constantly remind them that they're not doing well. They're not good enough. Verse 5 says, everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra wide prayer boxes, scripture verses inside. They wear robes with extra long tassels. They love to sit at the, Senate, or at the head of the table at banquets and seats of honor in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi. If we were to translate this into modern day, this would be People that love to wear their WWJD bracelets, their Christian t-shirts, have deep theological conversations about what the Bible says, also that they can remind people how they are not living according to the word of God. And they do this to make themselves look more spiritually superior so that people will give them platitudes and compliments rather than being humble. The more spiritual you look to people, the more respect, I guess, you think you have from them. These Pharisees, they love people being in awe of how smart and how holy they are and how great they are. And I relate a lot to this passage, to what the Lord is saying to these religious leaders. I relate a lot to this because for me, especially being a legalistic person or battling with legalism, it's so much easier to point out other people's flaws at the same time ignoring your own. If I can focus on what you're not doing, I don't have to address what I'm doing. And as a parent, it's so easy to be focusing on what your kids should be doing right than focusing on the right way to teach them on how to be doing right. It's a distinction. I can get frustrated, mad, and angry and focus on, hey, you're not doing this right, but what am I doing to lead that? What am I doing to teach that. See, I would teach my kids all about obedience, but at the same time, I would forget about one very important thing, and that's showing grace. Now, showing grace. I would proudly wear the mantle of disciplinarian, but I'd forget about the mantle of loving father. Now, don't get me wrong. I love my kids. I tell them every day how much I love them. I show them affection. I hug them. I kiss them. I play with them. I invest in them. I spend time with them. But if I'm being honest Today, in my own heart, my own thoughts, early in fatherhood, I was more eager to correct them than serve them. All because I focused on the platitudes of men and the heart of my children. See, legalistic parenting is all about me and how I look to other people, but grace-filled parenting is about the heart of the child. What is going on in their heart? The reality is, is that it's their heart is what determines their decisions. Their heart is what motivates them to act. And I think many dads, especially 
uh, because we're male, we don't stop to think on an emotional level too often. Especially when it comes to our kids. We only focus on surface issues and that black and white view of do what I say or else. It's my way or else. In Matthew 23, verse 8, this verse kind of just leapt off the pages for me this week. So I was looking, Jesus says in verse 8, Don't let anyone call you rabbi, for you only have one teacher, and all of you are equal as brothers and sisters. And he says, And don't address anyone here on earth as what? Father. For only God in heaven is your father. And that caught me off guard. I'm like, what does that mean? You know, Jesus tells these leaders, don't let anyone address you as father. And that hit me this week because I have four kids and I really like it that they call me father or daddy. You know, I tell them all the time, call me daddy because you're the only ones in this world that get to. We have a very special relationship. Call me daddy. Now, my youngest son, he's a pill. And uh, since he turned uh, three, and he's almost four now, but he does this thing where he calls me by my first name on purpose. And, you know, he doesn't really pronounce his words correctly, so it's kind of cute. He just calls me Joey, you know. And I say, no, that's not my name. You call me Daddy. Call me Daddy, but he'll still call me Joey. And, you know, at first you kind of laugh, and it's funny. You get a kick out of it. But after the 10 millionth time, it's not so funny anymore. And uh, so I was thinking about this passage of Scripture, and Jesus was like, don't let anyone call you Father, for you only have one Father in heaven. I'm like, well, maybe I shouldn't be getting mad at him after all. Maybe I should just let him, let him call me Joey. And uh, I was meditating on this, this passage and thinking through what's going on here. And if you think about what's happening, is Jesus is talking about these leaders who like to puff themselves up. Right? They like to elevate themselves. They like to feel superior and proud. And this term father was similar to how people call the priests in the Catholic Church father. It was more of a, a, a place of honor and respect than it was a relational term. And so here he's instructing these leaders and these disciples, don't let anyone call you father for only God in heaven is father. So that, that that's, reveals to me that God in heaven is the Father we should be respecting if we're looking at terms of respect. Now, just what, like what's at the core of every man, these men wanted to be on top to rule. And so being called Father was their way to solidify their position over everyone else. Uh, the prophet Malachi in Malachi chapter 2, he reveals to us as God is talking to the nation of Israel that for parents, our primary purpose as parents is to raise up godly offspring. That's our primary purpose. God had instituted marriage simply so that godly offspring could be raised up unto the Lord to raise kids that desire to honor God and serve him with all they are. And so for fathers like me that wrestle with pride and have this desire to be on top to rule like these Pharisees, we need to see what Jesus is actually talking about here about not letting anyone call you father. Especially... If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the first thing I see here in this passage is that in order for you to point your kids to Jesus, is that you have to get out of the way. You see, there was a term, this name Father, was God's name. But yet these Pharisees wanted to have that name. Jesus said, don't let anyone call you Father, for there's only one Father in heaven. You see, this statement is about your priority and your focus. 
Who is the priority? Who is the top dog? Who is the focus? And so when this hit me and this resonated with me, I asked myself this question. I asked, who is the most important person in my home? Who is it? Is it dad or is it Jesus? Who is the most important? And I followed that question up with, am I training my children to do my will or God's will? Who's on top? So I think this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying when you're fighting for that name, for that term father, what you're doing is you're fighting for God's place in the heart of your family. You're trying to unseat Jesus as the most important person in your home. And so kids are caught in that conflict between who is going to be dad, who is going to be father in the home, and trying to decide, do I live to honor dad or do I live to honor Jesus? See, one of the prominent love languages men have is this need to feel respected. I think one of the reasons why we may be extreme or overly harsh and disciplined sometimes ultimately comes from a feeling of a lack of respect, which actually translates in guy terminology to a lack of love. And I think this is why many men feel the need to fight for respect because the reality, they're fighting to know that their family loves them, honors them, cares for them. Well, what happens when we focus on that fight for respect is that we forget about love. And one of the worst and most devastating thing I think a husband can go through when it comes to his relationship with his wife is having his wife come up to him and say, you know what, I don't forget or I don't feel like you love me. It's hard. It's hard to deal with. What do you mean you don't feel like I love you? And I think... In my own life, when I've come up against issues in my marriage and and things where I've not been really loving my wife as I should, I start thinking about how on earth could she be feeling this way. And I start going through this list of all these things that I've done. I start to analyze, you know, how have I been showing her that I love her? And I think, you know, I go to work. I I provide. I make sure there's food on the table. I I do what I'm supposed to do. I take care of my responsibilities and my jobs. How, How could she not be feeling like I love her? And For the life of me, I can't figure out why she doesn't feel loved. And what I've learned over my 12 years of marriage and 10 years of parenting is that duty means diddly. Duty means diddly. And I'll explain that in a minute. See, guys, we're so often, we we feel like we're starving for that respect and that affirmation, and so we fall through with what we're supposed to do. We do our duties. We take care of our jobs, and then when we're done, what do we do? We look around and look for a little recognition. We look for that attaboy, and we mow the lawn, and we can go up to our wives and be like, hey, did you see what I did today? I mowed the grass. Yeah. See what I did today? I went to work, and I got paid. Right? Right? We, we do these duties, and then we look for some recognition. We look for that attaboy. And so when we see issues in our relationship with our wives, and our wives aren't feeling loved, we go back to those list of duties, the things that we've been doing and we've accomplished, the things we think we should be getting recognition for, and we use those as excuses to refute her feelings. But duties mean diddly. They mean diddly. See, that's what providing is. It's a duty. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, Paul tells, tells Timothy that if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially the members in his old household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Providing for your families is your duty as the husband and father of your home. That's what you're supposed to do. As the figurehead and representative of God in your homes, God, who is our father and provider, expects you as his representative in your family to also be provider. It's expected. The only thing that should keep us from doing our duty and being provider is a debilitating illness. Anything else is a lack of character which doesn't bring the respect and honor that we desire. Duties mean Diddly, husbands provide, end of story. There's no attaboy at the end of that. The reality is we should not be working for that attaboy. We should be working hard because we love Jesus. Going to work, taking care of the yard, running kids to sports, those are good things, but they're expected things. Why? Because you're a part of the family. You're a parent. And because you are a provider. It's expected. And if you compare the things that you do to all the things that mom does any given day that's overlooked, why, oh, why do we consider ourselves worthy of the acknowledgement? Duties are expected. Therefore, duties are not going to make your spouse feel loved. What does make her feel loved is going above and beyond, being intentional about making a point to let her know she is loved and cherished, investing in that relationship, giving her time. That's what counts. That's what counts, doing things special that are above normal, that are out of the ordinary. And you know what? The same is true for your kids. The same is true. And because spouses, husbands and wives have a unique relationship where they can have those kinds of conversations and should be having those on a regular basis, children will rarely, if never, come up to you, Dad, and say, you know what, Dad, I don't feel loved by you today. They're not going to do that. What they usually do is they usually internalize their feelings, assume something is wrong with them, and allow that to shape their view of the world and God. That's why the glory of children is their fathers. When all they see you do is demand respect, fight for top position, be top dog, it'll be hard for them to see Jesus offering love and grace because you are a living reflection of who God is to them. They won't know the kind of love that says, you know what, I'll pick you up when you fall. Because I love you no matter what. You don't have to rise up to another level for me to love you. I love you because I'm your father and because you are mine. See, my parents used to tell me when I was little, and I, I get so irritated because my kids do this to me now. Uh, TV will be on, we're watching TV as a family, and one of my kids will like stand up and stand right in front of the television. You know what I'm talking about? And I, I guess I used to do that, so I'm reaping what I sow. But my parents used to tell me when I was little that I made a better door than I do a window. You make a better door than you do a window. And I'd be like, what? And I think about it. It's like, oh, sorry. And I go sit down. You know, but you know what? As a father, as a parent, it's easy to be a door. It's easy. It's a lot more difficult. It takes effort to be a window. You know, if our kids are going to see Jesus in us, fathers, we need to quit fighting for his position as father, and we need to point to him instead. See, a grace-filled father gets out of the way so his children 
can see Jesus. Now, Ephesians chapter 5, Paul tells us in the church of Ephesus that the husband is the head of the wife. He's the head of the family. He's the figurehead. He's the leader. He's the spiritual leader, provider. There's this role that he's been designed to play by God. But also as the head, his job, his task is to love his wife sacrificially. The second thing I see here, uh, pulling out of this passage and looking at Ephesians chapter 5, is that, guys, that God has called you to be the head of your family, that it's the head's job to make the family feel ahead. It's the head's job of the family to make the family feel ahead, to have that sacrificial love. That's how Jesus showed his love for us. He sacrificed himself. And one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture that describe the sacrificial love of Christ is in John chapter 13, a famous story about how Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. In John chapter 13, beginning in verse 3, says, Jesus knew that the Father in heaven had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. You see, Jesus knew his position. He knew who he was. He knew his place. He knew his authority. He knew his role. And even though he knew what God had given him as position, as authority, look what he did with that knowledge. Verse 4 said, So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. And then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel he had around him. This was a job reserved for slaves. And here, the one who had all the authority lowers himself to be a servant. Verse 6, it says, When Jesus came to Simon Peter. Peter said to him, Lord, you are going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never, ever wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands, my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Jesus knew his role, but he didn't let that puff himself up with pride. It motivated him to pour out his love. He knelt down as a servant, put those he cared about before himself. Here it was washing feet, but later Jesus would give his life for us on the cross. And Peter didn't know why Jesus was serving him this way. He had no idea. In many ways, sometimes it can feel like constantly giving yourself as a parent, sacrificing, living sacrificially as a spouse is a losing battle. Especially when it comes to children. You do things time and time again, and sometimes it just feels like they don't even notice about all you do. But look at what Jesus says in verse 8 to Peter. Verse 8, Jesus says, unless I wash you, you will not belong to me. Dads, I got to nail this down, that unless you serve your children, you cannot expect to have their hearts. They may belong to you by blood, but the reason why they leave your home when they're older will ultimately be to get away from you because of the weight of rules and regulations and harshness in your home. See, we are to serve our families now so that we will have their heart later when it counts. A great fear of mine, especially now as I have a daughter going into junior high school, is that as kids grow up, so do their problems. Kids' problems grow with them. And I just fear that it would be horrible for Jocelyn one day, as well as all my kids, to feel like she couldn't come to me when she was in trouble or for advice or for protection or for help for fear of judgment of what I might say or do. 
because of the heavy burden of having to feel like she needed to be perfect before she could have my love. So what benefit is it to have a daughter who obeys me but doesn't respect me? To have a daughter that follows the line but doesn't feel close to me? You see, headship doesn't mean slave owner. It means a servant leader. And a grace-filled father will put his family before himself, his work ethic, his resources, with time and attention. Everything will be invested in his family. Something I'm learning to ask myself to kind of combat where I've been is why do the issues I get upset about matter? The other day we were at the store and I was freaking out about something really insignificant. Later I had to think about it. It's like, really, what was the big deal? Sometimes you have to stop and ask yourself questions like, why does this issue matter? What's really at stake here? Why am I upset or why am I setting this line? What is the real goal for discipline in this situation to be considered? Is it to pay them back because I'm angry and frustrated or is it really to teach them to love to do what is right? What's the real reason behind my motivation? And then also I ask myself, what do I need to apologize for? What do I need to make right? They might be kids, but I'm not exempt from making my relationship with them right. Servant leaders. The answer to those questions reveal the motivation and likely outcome of those situations. The third thing I see in the core concept of this message today for our dads is that when your family feels important, they will feel what you feel is important is important. When your family feels important, they will feel what you feel is important is important. And that is the definition of respect that we desire. When we feel something's important, then they feel that too. The most important thing that that we would want from our children, the most important thing that we want our kids to find important, the calling that God has placed on our lives, is that we want them to find their relationship with Jesus Christ important. And the best way for them to feel what we feel is important is to invest in them and make them feel important. Verse 12 of Matthew 23, Jesus said, But those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. See, when they feel important, they will not only respect us, they will honor us. When they honor us, according to one of the commandments of God, God says he will bless them. Honor your father and mother. And long will be your days. There's blessing that comes to those who honor their father and mother. But we have to understand that for that blessing to come, the onus is not just on the kids to honor their father and mother. It's not just up to children to honor their parents. Fathers, we can provoke our kids to wrath. We can provoke our kids into rebellion by the way we lead them. The glory of the children is their father's. You could be the stumbling block that stifles your child's blessing, or you could be the gateway that leads them into blessing. See, the fastest way to disrespect and dishonor is arrogance and pride, but the fastest way to honor and respect is humility and grace. And that's my prayer today, that I would be a grace-filled father. To be a grace-filled father, we need to love our families the way Christ loved us. As the head, we need to make them feel ahead. We need to rise above duty, pursue their hearts over platitudes, and point them to the Father. As men, may we always be men that point our kids to Jesus by getting out of the way so that they could see their Father in heaven. It's a story that 
pastor of mine when I was growing up used to always tell, and it stuck with me. And he said, this little girl came to her father one day, and she had just come from Sunday school, and so she was kind of had this puzzled look on her face, and she asked her dad a question. She asked, Dad, how tall am I? And dad said, well, you're about, you know, three feet, three and a half feet. She's like, okay. She's like, well, how tall is Jesus? I was like, well, we don't really know, but maybe five, six foot. She's like, okay. It's like, so if Jesus is six foot and I'm like three feet and Jesus is in me, then he should stick out, shouldn't he? And the father looked at her and was like, yeah, Jesus is in you. He's going to stick out. He's going to stick out. And if we are pursuing grace-filled fatherhood, Fathers, Jesus is going to stick out in you. And my prayer for all the dads today is that we would live to shine the light on Jesus. This world is getting crazy. The only hope we have is that our children, the next generation, grow up to live a godly legacy. And maybe you're a dad here today. Maybe you've been like me, and you've made some parenting mistakes. Maybe your kids are young, or maybe they're old and gone, whatever the case is. And if you were to go back and look at your life, there are many things that you would wish you could take back or do differently. You see, the beauty of the cross of Jesus Christ is that that event guarantees a second chance. The cross of Christ guarantees a second chance. It means that there's a great do-over. And if you just give your heart to the Lord, you will find the grace that you need to begin living that grace-filled fatherhood today. To begin giving Jesus your heart again, pursuing your family again and his sacrificial love. And his blessings will come. So Jesus promised as you humble yourself to serve your families, you'll begin to step out of the way to open their eyes to the Father in heaven they will see him because they will see him in you. As you lower yourself from where you are, it will be Jesus who raises you up again to where you want.